If you would find your place this morning in Philippians chapter 2. If uh, Again, if you don't have access to a Bible, please uh, feel free to uh, grab one from the back or in the pew uh, in front or behind you, there may be one. We're continuing in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And I'd like to begin reading from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ." But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If you were with us last week, you will know that we are beginning or have begun as of last week uh, some character sketches or character studies in the Bible. Uh, and you'll recall that I shared last week how, uh, how much I appreciate character studies in the Bible because we get to peer behind the veil, as it were, the curtain of that uh, outward character in order to see what's really happening in the heart. Uh, and we're in the process of studying three fascinating characters the Apostle Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And last week we made a start on the first, the Apostle Paul. And we saw in that message that he was a man with eternity in view. He was someone who didn't look at temporal things, but looked at the day of Christ. He had eternity in view. We looked at a couple of things and uh, just to give us a quick uh, summary, uh, a reminder, a review... We saw that Paul was constantly focused on the day of Christ. He looked for the day of Christ every single day of his life, I believe. It was his constant focus. We saw that he had a desire to persevere in the race of faith like a marathon runner who is enduring in that race. That was his desire. Uh, We also noted there in verse 16 that he wanted to labour tirelessly for the Lord Jesus as though a disciplined farmer would. That's the metaphor that was pictured. And then last time, last week, the last thing we looked at together was a word on motives and areas of service in the church. And you might recall that from last week if you were here. What it is to serve the Lord. What are the motives for serving the Lord? And we dealt with some of that last week. But today we continue our character study. I had hoped you might recall initially to do the Apostle Paul in one week, but I'm so glad I didn't because there is so much here for us to look at. So we're looking at the Apostle Paul in the second part uh, as we continue in verse 17. Let me read that for you. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also 
should be glad and rejoice with me. Those two verses will form our text. When I first began in the book of Philippians, and some of you are thinking, yeah, I remember that, it was about 20 years ago. When I first began in the book of Philippians, I was a little unsure as to really what the theme of Philippians was. I'd read lots of commentaries and lots of people everywhere were telling me, you know, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, joy, joy. It's just joy everywhere. And I wrestled through that. I looked for it. I couldn't seem to find it. Even though there's lots of mentions to joy, I wasn't seeing what they were suggesting. But I have come to the conclusion that the book of Philippians is about joy. And I'll tell you why today as we look at this specifically. Uh, it was quite revolutionary in the study this week. And you might say, well, you should have known really the theme of Philippians before you started three and a half years ago or whatever. And that's probably true. Uh, but in this journey in the book, some things have become more and more uh, aware to me that I had not seen before. This word joy in the English uh, and the various forms in which it appears uh, is used 13 times in four chapters. Let me say this to you this morning and this is what you really need to hang off today as we look at this message. Joy is the product of an eternal vision. Joy is the product of an eternal vision. To put it another way, if you want to have joy, you must have eternity in view. If you get nothing else this morning, that's the summary. I could almost sit down because that really is the whole thing that we're hanging it off today. Joy is the product of an eternal vision. There are many places in Philippians, I said 13 times the word joy is used and in every case it is used as it relates to an eternal vision. I'm not going to take the time to read each of those passages to you in Philippians, but I will tell you this, and this is a fact because I did this study during the week. If you were to take the word joy and its various forms in the entire New Testament, every single one of them, and there are many, many, many of them, you will find in that comprehensive study that it is always associated with eternal matters. That is huge. Let me just let me just help you understand what I mean by that. If you take the word joy, you go and get a concordance out and you look up every single time the word joy appears in the New Testament, it is always in reference to eternal matters. Now you say, well, hang on, what do you mean by eternal matters? I mean anything that relates to our God because He's eternal. Whether it be His Word, whether it be Himself, whether it be God's people. For example, God Himself is our joy. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Galatians chapter 5. That comes from eternity because the the Spirit of God is eternal. Um, The church are a people of Joy. You say, well, how's that possible? Because it came from God who is eternal. God's people operating in love brings joy. Philemon chapter 1 verse 7 says that. When God's people walk in the truth, it is a source of joy, Third uh, John tells us. And there are many, many, many examples. But understand this today, that joy is always the product of an eternal vision. You say, are you preaching yet? Well, I sort of am, but this is really just the introduction before we look at some specifics here. I want you to not make the mistake of thinking of joy as a fleeting feeling of satisfaction, a smile on the face, happiness in the heart due to what you perceive to be positive circumstances. Most people think joy is positive circumstances and that brings about something on my face or in my character. That is not joy. Let me let me put it to you this way. I don't believe, and I say this respectfully, I don't think the Lord Jesus Christ was smiling all the way on the way to the cross. Yet he endured the cross with joy. I don't believe those martyrs who clung to those posts back in the days of the Reformation and they they were burning alive or they were being torn to pieces by beasts. I don't think that they were smiling and yet they had an incredible sense of joy. 
we have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? How is that a reality? Because joy in the Scriptures transcends circumstances. It sees beyond the parameters of time. It is not bound by this life. True joy looks beyond the parameters of time, looks beyond the dashes between the gravestones, so to speak, when you were born and when you were dying. It looks beyond that temporal, present, physical life that we live into eternity and onto Jesus Christ. Joy can only operate like that. And so if you say, I don't feel like I'm a really joy-filled person, it must be because you do not have a focus on eternity. Because joy is always the product of eternal vision. May I say this to us as well? Only a believer can experience true joy. Because only a believer has a joy-filled future. Did you get that? Only a Christian can understand joy because they are the only ones who have a joy-filled future. The unsaved do not have a joy-filled future. They have a fury and wrath-filled future if they remain on the course that they are on right now. Joy is the product of eternal vision. That is why, Christian, the saddest people in all the world are Christians. You say, what? Doesn't that just totally totally oppose what you just said? Let me explain. The saddest people in all the world are Christians who are living in rebellion to God. You say, why? Well, because they have tasted of the great joy when it comes from that eternal vision on Jesus Christ. They know that soul-satisfying joy that fills the heart of one who has experienced the Spirit of God. They know that. They've tasted it, but they have lost sight of that and are pursuing temporal pleasure in this life and find no true joy. Did you know that is why when you are walking away from the Lord, if you are a Christian, it is so hard. Life is suddenly so despairing and so depressing because I have tasted joy, I have seen Christ, I have seen what He's done in my life and there's there's a joy and an exuberation within me when I'm walking with Him. But when I move away from an eternal vision, suddenly I live in a place that seems like despair. You know why? It's because you've tasted of the fountain of living waters and instead of continuing to drink there, like Jeremiah chapter 2 says, you've gone and got your pick and your axe and started to dig your own cisterns that are filled with murky, disgusting water and drinking from that as opposed to the fountain of living waters. The Apostle Paul was the Apostle of joy. You only have to take a moment to think about his life. Think about what he went through and yet think of his attitude. Though the outer is wasting away, Paul says, my inner man is being renewed day by day, moment by moment I'm being renewed. How is this possible, Paul? Have you not been shipwrecked? Yes, I have. Paul, how is this possible? Have you not been stoned? Yes, I have. Paul, how is this possible? Have you not been beaten with rods three times? Yes, I have. Paul, have you not been scourged? Yes, I have. How have you got joy? Because my inner man is being renewed and because my vision is on eternity and the day of Christ. Only when we have that do we operate with the joy that Paul is here referring to. And so this morning there are three points we're going to look at. This is what they are. Joyful uncertainty. Strange one. Joyful sacrifice. And then lastly, joy replicated. We're looking this morning at the message Paul A man with eternity in view, part two. Father, as always, I come before you and ask that you would uh, provide strength and grace and enablement to adequately convey the truths of your word. Uh, Lord, I realize the great task that is before me that no human can ever perform on their own. And so I again submit uh, and bring myself under the total headship and leadership of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God.
that he might do a work in us and through this time of preaching. Uh, Lord, help us to lay aside uh, all that we are clinging to in this life, that we would uh, take a hold and apprehend a view of eternity. Help us, we pray. Oh, Lord, we need reviving in this area. Uh, We live in a culture that is so uh, steeped and steeped with this idea of temporal possessions and prosperity and personal gain uh, and profit and many other things. Lord, we need to lose sight of all of that, that we might gain uh, a true vision uh, of eternity. Help us, we pray, in these few moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at joyful uncertainty. I've given you some history on what happened last week. Paul says that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. In verse 17, the Apostle Paul continues in this dialogue and says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. I want you to note the first two words there, even if. Now, sometimes even if can be translated since. It can be a reality. In the Greek, it can be either. We've got to work out whether the Apostle Paul is saying, if this should happen as a question or since this is going to happen. And I believe, having studied carefully, that this is a sense of uncertainty. This is the question, even if I should be poured out as a drink offering. And the reasons why I believe that is a reality is because in what we have already read, we find that in verse 23 of the same chapter, Paul says, I hope, therefore, to send, that is, Timothy, just as soon as I will see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul does not know what the future holds for him. Now, let's be reminded of what what his situation is right now. He is presently in Rome. It is the early 60s, 60-something AD. He is chained to a Roman imperial officer under house arrest for two years, the book of Acts tells us in chapter 28. This is the Apostle Paul's situation. But God has granted great grace because in his situation, in his rented abode, chained to a Roman soldier, he is able to have people come and talk and share and maybe even uh, have communion and uh, the Lord's table and various other things with them throughout that whole two years. God used this time. And it's at this time that he writes to the book, to, to the church at Philippi. This is that time. Uh, that we have in front of us. And the Apostle Paul is there in house arrest. He's uncertain about his future. God had not made known to the Apostle whether he would be executed at the hands of the Romans yet or not. He knew his death was coming. He knew that was a reality. I must go bound to Rome, he says. It's coming. I know what's coming. But he does not know if this is the time. He doesn't know whether he's going to remain imprisoned or be set free to go and visit his beloved assemblies, which is his heart's desire. We know that's his desire because in Philippians 1 and verse 25, we read, uh, he convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's his belief, that he is going to stay for a period of time, but there's no certainty in that. He was waiting to see how things would go with him. Now, you'll remember that he is here because back in Jerusalem, he appealed to Caesar. Do you remember that? Remember that? He stood before Festus, he stood before King Agrippa and various others. And then finally, he said, I appeal to Caesar as a Roman, uh, as as a, a Roman citizen. And now you need to take me. And that's when they put him on the boat and they brought him finally after shipwreck to his current abode in Rome, awaiting his audience with Caesar. That's where we are. He waits. And it's during this final term of this imprisonment, house arrest in Rome, that Paul writes this book of Philippians. This is the last book that he writes in his two years house arrest. So you say, why are you telling us all this? Well, I want to ask this question. Why was there such uncertainty about the Apostle Paul's future. Let me just paint the picture so you know what's happening at this moment in time. Emperor Nero has taken over from his predecessor Claudius, who was poisoned by his wife in 54 AD. Incidentally, she poisoned his mushrooms, which is why I don't eat mushrooms. That's not why. Nero 
was born in AD 37. Okay, try and stay with me here and you'll get a picture. Nero was born in AD 37. He was educated at the feet of the philosopher Seneca, who Nero eventually forced to commit suicide. Nero murdered his way to the imperial throne, which he occupied from 54 to 68. Right now, Paul, 61, somewhere like that, 61 AD, right in the middle of Emperor Nero's reign as this sovereign god over Rome, so to speak. In AD 59, Nero arranged for his meddlesome mother, Agrippina, to take a trip across the Bay of Naples on a boat that he had sabotaged so that its stern, where she would have been seated, would break off during the voyage and sink. That's nice. Yet Nero had failed to take into account that his mother was a strong swimmer. Having made it safely back to shore, Nero instructed a guard to kill her with his dagger. Nero hatched the story that his mother had planned to assassinate him and it was necessary to detain Agrippina and put her to death. Nice fella. It was this Nero that just a couple of years after this time in history, Just a little bit after Paul's release in the summer of 64 AD, he started a terrible fire in Rome. The fire lasted six days and seven nights and consumed three quarters of the city of Rome. Three quarters of the city of Rome gone in seven nights. He was accused of starting the fire and history serves us well that very likely he did that. But in order to deflect the accusations that he himself had lit the fire, Nero laid the blame on the new sect called Christians. This is what one historian writes. This began the worst persecution ever inflicted on Christendom. In in their very deaths, these Christians were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Tacitus, a Roman historian, further writes this, And so, to get rid of this rumour, Nero set up, or falsely accused, the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations, which are commonly called Christians. Christus, in the Greek, which is Christ, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Checked for a moment, or managed, this pernicious uh, superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. So Christianity is growing and spreading and there's a problem occurring here. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then, on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred for the human race. Now, they, they did this because they hated the Christians, okay? Not because they were, uh, they were the ones who set fire. This is what this Roman historian writes. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified, others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had even thrown open his own grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment. For it was felt that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of this individual. Do you get the picture? This is Nero. This is who Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And don't for a moment think that Paul was not aware of what was happening in Rome. Don't for a moment think that Paul was, oh, he was a bit naive. Paul was a learned scholar, a Roman citizen. He was up to date with every kind of information you could ever have. And back in Jerusalem, he says, I appeal to Emperor Nero. And we say, are you nuts? Do you know what he has done? Do you know who this man is? Why would you do that? F.B. Meyer writes this, Whilst Nero was on the throne and the hatreds of the Jews so virulent, there was little hope of his escape. Paul had an uncertainty about the future, and rightfully so, 
I would suggest. Clearly, there was uncertainty. But in no way did this steal the apostles' joy. Look at our text. He says, even if, put the rest in parenthesis for a minute, at the end of that verse, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Two times he says, joy and then rejoice. How is it possible that this man, with an uncertain future, knowing full well that tomorrow he could be executed, today could be his last day, he is able to write to these Philippian believers and say, I rejoice with you all, I have joy. This is no problem. Emperor Nero doesn't worry me one little bit. My uncertainty of the future, not knowing, and I don't mean anxiety, I mean he had no knowledge of what the future was going to hold, it did not cause him one little bit of grief. He had joy. You know how? It's because he had learned in whatsoever state he found himself to be content. Content. Do you know how you get to a place of contentment? It's the product of an eternal vision. Joy and contentment go hand in hand. These two things are the same in one sense. 2 Corinthians 12.10, the Apostle Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I'm content in Philippians 4 and verse 11, the next uh, page along. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Do we know this about the Apostle Paul? We know this. Because at Philippi, this very place, he was in a prison with his partner, singing songs in the middle of the night, totally content being in stocks, knowing full well that he could die in that same situation. The Apostle Paul exercised an eternal vision. So let me ask us this morning as we consider this first point, how do you and I have joy in uncertain and unknown circumstances? We do it when we look beyond the circumstance. We do it when we look beyond the parameter of time. When we look beyond what is in front of us and what our own mental and logical capabilities bring to our attention, we look even beyond that and when it comes to the very specifics and we say, how are we going to survive financially here? How are we going to survive when it comes to this situation? What about our family? What about the circumstances that are happening all around us? If we get bogged down into them, we will never operate with an eternal perspective. The Apostle Paul says, you can't look at them, you must look at him. You must look at the day of Christ as it approaches and see everything through the lens of eternity as opposed to, I'll look at this and then I'll look at God. No, look at God and then you'll look at that correctly. Make God the focus. Have a theocentric view, a God-centered view as opposed to a problem-centric view. That is how we have true joy. Here is the problem, however. If you do not know And I mean no joy. If you do not know the truth of who God is, you are listening to something you cannot do. If you say, I cannot do this, Pastor, you don't realize, I have tried that and I cannot do it, then here is my challenge for you. You've never come to know the true joy giver. Because when you come to know the joy giver, then you are able to exercise yourself in this way. It is my contention that in this very room, there may be those who believe and have believed for many years, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but in actual fact, you've never truly been converted. You're nothing more than a pew warmer, so to speak, and you're satisfied there because this is not a reality. And my challenge to you this morning is be born again. Be born again. Because until you are born again, this cannot be a reality. And Christian, if you truly say, I know I've been born again, I know I've tasted, I've had some of that living water and I know the truth about this, but I can't seem to have this joyous perspective, it's because you are walking in the temporal ways of this life. It's because you are caught up in the affairs of this life as opposed to the next life. You are not doing what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, which says, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For your life is hid with God and you are in Christ. This is not your home. You're just passing through. This is temporary. I'm a pilgrim on a journey and my focus must be like pilgrim in John Bunyan, the celestial city. I'm looking to the next life. That is the means of joy. The hymn writer 
said this, oft times the day seems long. Our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race. Paul said that. Till we see Christ. Church, it's okay to have uncertainty. We don't know tomorrow. We don't know today. We don't know what the Lord will do with us this next week. But I embrace uncertainty with joy because I am operating with an eternal vision. That's what Paul says. So that's joyful uncertainty. That alone is sufficient for us just to apply that truth. But we must move on. I want you to notice something secondly here. In verse 17, if, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I want you to see secondly, the joyful sacrifice. The joyful sacrifice. This is remarkable. So Paul has already given us two metaphors. He's told us about the runner in the race, you're a marathon runner, and he's told us about the hard working farmer who is constantly labouring tirelessly for the cause of God. We see those two in the previous verse. But now we have a new metaphor and it's a striking metaphor. Taken from the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the tabernacle, daily, both morning and evening, burnt offerings were accompanied by what is called drink offerings. Now I confess I had no idea really what a drink offering was before this. And uh, now I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. This is an incredible picture. So morning and evening, here we are, we're a Jewish assembly and, and we are going to the tabernacle and, and, and morning and evening there's a sacrifice given and upon this sacrifice there is something called a drink offering. Before the fire is lit to incinerate the lamb that is on that altar, the priest would come and pour wine over the victim to enhance the sweet aroma as it goes up before the nostrils of God. Get the picture? Okay. We don't because we've never seen probably a lamb slain and the blood sprinkled all over you and all that sort of thing and I thought it probably wasn't the best thing to do that this morning. So, But we could do a drink offering so to speak. If you can imagine a lamb right here and that lamb just before we incinerate it, light it up, we are going to pour on top of it this wine so that that will produce a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. Uh, in fact, in some historians' writings, we find that sometimes the Jews would uh, substitute the wine for even a perfume, an oil or a honey, so that that would be the drink offering sacrifice that would create, again, a different aroma. I want you to, for a moment, please, turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. I want you to see this for yourself before we move on. Numbers chapter 15. And we will return to Philippians in just a moment. Beginning in verse 1, we're in the law here. We're being told how things need to be done as it relates to sacrificial offerings. And in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Turn with me please to Numbers 28. Again, just to put us into the picture here. Speaking of the daily offerings, as I spoke of before, beginning in verse 8, Numbers 28, verse, excuse me, Numbers 28, verse 1. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain of offering mixed with a quarter of hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin uh, for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offerings, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Get the picture? The drink offering. Probably not something we have ever truly considered in our life. Just go back to Philippians with me. Paul says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, he is clearly referring back to this particular offering that was accompanied by, excuse me, that accompanied the sacrificial lamb that was offered twice daily, once in the morning and once at twilight. What I'd like you to consider here is two subpoints here as we look at this matter of drink offering. The first thing I want you to note here when he says, even if I am to be poured out, one Greek word there, poured out, this is Paul's joyful embrace of martyrdom. Paul's joyful embrace of martyrdom. This word in the Greek, poured out, is very clearly a reference to his own martyrdom. The only other time in the scripture where this word is used, poured out, as a drink offering, is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you know anything about the New Testament, you know 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote before he was beheaded. And in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6, this is what he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He was very clearly saying, I am ready to die here and I embrace this joyfully. Paul was a man who viewed the sacrifice of his own life as a joyful experience. Do you? Do you? Do you look at an opportunity to lay down your life for the cause of Christ as something you not just Think about, but embrace joyfully. So much this man had eternity in view that he was prepared at any instant joyfully to literally lay down his life. Whether it was going to be on the chopping block, whether it was going to be on a in a crucifixion, whether it was going to be in the arena torn to pieces by wild dogs, it didn't matter which way round it was, I'm just ready to do this and joyfully I anticipate this reality. Paul recognised that it was the entrance to personal fellowship with his Saviour. So much was he looking at Christ that nothing in this life moved him. Whatever you do to my body doesn't really matter because I'll get to see him. The day of Christ is approaching and for me to live is Christ and if I die, I will gain. It doesn't matter what you do here. How do you kill a man like that? How do the Romans deal with a man like that who says, well, if you want to beat me, beat me. It's for the cause of Christ. I suffer in my body, he says. You want to kill me? No problem. I'm going to be in the, I'm going to be in the place of Jesus Christ. That suits me fine. Wow. How do we get to this joyful embrace of martyrdom? Developing a vision of eternity will bring this joyful embrace of suffering and death for the sake of Christ. This commitment and this genuine joy that to us, let's be honest, is a foreign concept. It is. We don't really get this. Some of us may have an inkling, but we don't get this. This commitment of genuine joy only comes when eternity is in view. It's as though I can reach out and grab it. It's as though I can taste it and feel it and smell it and see it when most of us don't even realise that eternity is yet to come. You know, there are men in history who got this like Paul. 
One in particular who I appreciate reading is a man by the name of Ignatius. In 108 AD, this is what he said. Now, now, he says, I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ. How do you get there? You get there with an eternal vision. Church, we live in an age where this does not seem to be a reality hardly anywhere. Occasionally we hear and we read of those uh, brothers and sisters who are persecuted in other countries who lay down their life and we, we, sort, of, uh, we sort of think of that and we say, wow, that's wonderful or, or even we don't even, uh, even give it a second thought. Maybe we even think of it in a weird way and say, well, they're a bit strange, aren't they, that they would be willing to lay down their life in the cause of Christ. So foreign is this idea and I admit first and foremost, I do not pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters as I ought to. I don't see their sacrifice as I ought to but this message alone has stirred within me such a fire and such an understanding of the fact that I am called perhaps to this very thing and I need to embrace it joyfully. But we live in a day and age where that's not true. You know what most Christians truthfully if we're being honest are like we are Demas's. You say, who's Demas? In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, we are told by the Apostle Paul that Demas, who was a co-laborer of the Apostle going through the journeys with uh, probably Barnabas and, and Silas and, and other men who he was with and John Mark, and at one point he came to a particular place and the Bible tells us that instead of going with the Apostle Paul, he fell in love with this present world and departed to Thessalonica. You know what happened? They were travelling around about and they, he found a place. He said, I like this place. I'm falling in love with this place. I am going to do this. This is much better than what you, Paul, and the rest of you guys are doing. I'm staying here. That is a summary of the average Christian life. That's a summary of my life very often. I go through this life, I go through this world and, and I see something nice and say, I'm planting right here. This is a good spot. The suffering's over there and the difficulties over there, but this is a good spot. I'm falling in love with this present world. Let us not be Demases. Let us not be men who would desert. This joyful embrace of martyrdom is seen in Paul, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, John Huss, William Tyndale, John Rogers, Thomas Cranmer and thousands of others seem so foreign to us today because our vision is not of eternity. And I'm calling us to a true place of joy as a part of eternal vision that is prepared to do this. Paul's joyful embrace of martyrdom. But then secondly, sub-point, I also want you to see Paul's joyful sacrifice viewed as ancillary. Paul's joyful sacrifice viewed as ancillary. So what do you mean? I'll show you what I mean. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, there is a deep, deep truth here that if you are not careful, you will skip straight over it. A careful observation of the text demonstrates Paul's humility and desire for these Philippian believers. Not only is he prepared to lay down his life and be poured out as a drink offering, but the picture here is that the Philippians form the lamb on the altar. On the sacrifice of your faith, Paul says, I am prepared, Paul says, to be the wine that is poured on top of your sacrifice of faith. You know what Paul is in essence saying? I am ancillary, I am supplementary to your incredible salvation and your incredible work for God. He says, I am just happy enough to complete the sacrifice, to be the final touch on the top that provides the completion of this sacrifice. In essence, he's saying, I'm nothing in all of this. This is all about you, your sacrifice and your life. You are the lamb. Your faith is the lamb that is being offered before the Lord. And I am just that little thing that is poured on top that's the picture here of a drink 
offering. You know what Paul says? Paul says, you Philippians are centre stage. He says, you are the ones who are sacrificing. You are the ones who are truly offering your faith before the Lord. I'm nothing in this. I'm minor. I'm supplementary to your sacrifice and offering. Another word for this is a libation. Just the toppings of a sacrifice. You know what Paul says? He says, I just want to be the libation. I just want to be the one poured out. I just want to be the one who is credited to your account. I want to complete the sacrifice. And if it means that you produce a sweet aroma before the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am satisfied. I am so happy to be the ancillary offering. I don't know about you, but with that picture in mind, can you see Paul's humility? Can you see Paul's love for these people? Can you see Paul's joy in simply being valued only as that which completes others? He says, I'm here for one purpose that I might bring about a completion of your offering and a completion of your sacrifice. I don't even want to be known. Let no one ever call the Apostle Paul someone great. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I just want to be poured out on top. If that's going to complete. And if it's not necessary, then that's fine. Even if I am to be poured out. He says, I'm prepared to be, if that's what God wants, as long as one thing happens and it's credited to your account, O Philippians. You know what I find today? I find as I survey Christian culture, I find so many, so many want to be great. So many have a desire that their sacrifice would be remembered for all time. I find that there's celebrityism in Christianity today. And yet in the Apostle Paul, he is pouring out his life's blood as a libation on top of their faith. And I say to us, is that our mentality this morning? Is it our mentality here at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church? If God would just use me to complete the sacrifice of others, if God would use me, even if I'm never known, if nobody ever knows what that nice smell before God really was, it doesn't matter. I just want to complete the sacrifice for others. There is no selfish ambition found here. There is no egotistical approach. There is simply otherism, others. I wonder, are you prepared to lay down your life for the brethren as the ancillary sacrifice? Is your heart so moved toward God's people and a desire to see them faithfully serving the Lord that you would gladly lay down your own life as a libation upon their faith? Prepared to do that? Because the Lord Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Powerful picture. Very powerful picture. In conclusion, the third and final point here. Having given all of that and his readers knew what Paul was saying here. There was no explanation. We need the explanation. We haven't seen the lamb. We haven't seen the libation offered. He had to explain. Uh, he didn't have to explain. I have to explain to us so that we get the picture here. But the picture was known to them. And then immediately following this, he says in verse 18, Likewise, you Philippians should be glad and rejoice with me. You know what this is? This is joy replicated. This is the application. The Apostle Paul makes application here. He says, I've told you that we're looking for the day of Christ. We're striving not to run in vain. We're striving not to labour in vain like a farmer. Uh, I'm striving to lay myself down on the altar of martyrdom and I'm willing to be that libation, that wine, that drink offering on top of your sacrifice. He says all this. Now, having understood all that, you rejoice with me, he says. Have the same joy I've got. Understand how I'm operating, he says to the church at Philippi. You be like me in this. He says, have the same joy. Have the same joy. Have the same view on eternity. Don't look at now. Don't look at my sacrifice. Don't look at all the striving and the labour. Look at the day of Christ because it is approaching and while you're looking at it, hold fast to the word of Life, he says. Look and hold. And that will produce joy. Let me, let me ask us, church, in closing, are you living 
with eternity in view? Are you really? If you're in your heart of hearts, do you say for sure, I am here for one purpose, and that is the glorification of Christ. I'm not here to build bigger barns. I'm not here to be to be wealthy and I'm not here to have all of these other wonderful things and I'm not saying any of those things in and of themselves are wicked or immoral but I am saying that our purpose is not these things. Our purpose is an eternal view with the purpose of holding forth the word of life that the world would know the gospel that we would labour faithfully in his service because the day of Christ approaches. And I guess in some ways I want to send out a rebuke for us this morning And remind us of this. Eternity. Eternity is in front of us. It's before us. It may occur. We're already eternal. We know that in the sense that we have eternal life and we're living it already now. But the reality of the end of this life is just a moment. Just a moment away. What is life? It is even a vapour. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Uh, Proverbs tells us, boast not of tomorrow for no one knows what a day brings forth. Look unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for this same joy endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to run, we are to labour, we are to toil, and we are to sacrifice with this in view. Because joy is the product of an eternal vision. Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, are you living the joy-filled life. In other words, do you have a vision of eternity? Heavenly Father, we have looked at for some time at your word here. Uh, I trust it has been uh, explained faithfully, delivered fervently. And Lord, I pray that we would respond effectively. I pray that we would respond to whatever it is that you would have each of us to respond with. Uh, Lord, convict us, send out within us uh, a great feeling that is inescapable. Not just an emotional feeling, but a true conviction that, Lord, if there's things we need to lose, then we would lose them. Uh, If there's things we need to cleave to and cling to, that we would do that. Uh, Lord, let us not leave, we pray, today just going about our normal daily duties of life, business as usual, But may we be confronted with this truth that Paul was a man with eternity in view. Paul was a man of joy because of that. That we too are called to have eternity in view and to operate with joy. You say so many times in your word that your joy may be full. May we have fullness of joy and we know that comes in one place when we look to the day of Christ, when we look to Christ himself. Help us, we pray. Help us to be able to sing with truth in just a moment. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee uh, in everything. Take our purse, take our wallets, take our cars, take our possessions, take our voice, take our hands, take our feet, take our bodies, take our families, take every part of us, O Lord, because we understand true discipleship is forsaking all and following You. Help us to understand this reality, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.